Welcome to TTB Community. I'm Elliot Shibley, and here with me, as always, is the esoteric Robert Demena. Each week, we like to bring you insight from travel authors, adventurers, conservationists, digital nomads, tour guides, and some of our very own personal travel experiences. This week, we have a special guest, and they're all special. So his name is Benjamin Jordan, and he started in the marketing, fashion, and advertising space, and then entered the adventure space later in life. He started by skateboarding across Canada, and that evolved into paragliding. We cover that on the episode, but ultimately, this conversation is about his experience paragliding from Mexico to Canada, to the Canadian border, following the migration pattern of the monarch butterfly. We get insight on the monarch butterfly itself, the logistics behind paragliding such a long distance, and his general philosophy and worldview. Uh, We loved this conversation, and it really was a fun one to have. Before we get into that, though, the travel tip of the week, spend time learning about the local ingredients of the destination you're visiting. Because once you have an idea of what the ingredients are, why they are, why they were uh, used, you then can better pick out the, the cuisines that use those ingredients and have a more authentic experience. I find that fun to do, to understand that, to have that information before you go. Um, it, it, just, it just adds to the overall experience. Before we get into the conversation, check out some of the cool things we offer. The Traveler's Blueprint offers a travel journal and planner that is available for $7.99 on our website. It is a PDF, so you can fill it out online or in paper, and it is completely reusable. We also offer a Become Your Own Travel Agent five-part video tutorial. Part one is navigation, two is booking airfare, three blogs, research, and reviews, four itinerary building, and five safety, cultural norms, and thoughtful travel. You can find that on our website, and it is $25. We also offer travel consulting. So for more information on that, go to our website and feel free to send us a DM on social media or an email. Lastly, you can join us, and if you want to, you can you can be a part of our Travel Around Table series. That's where we sit down with a group of, of travelers, send us your email with your name, your website, and a few travel-related topics that you enjoy discussing, and we will get back to you. Welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint. Start designing your next adventure. Benjamin, welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint podcast. Wow, thanks for having me. This is awesome. Yeah, we're, we're again, very excited to talk to you. We've been talking to you for a little while. Uh, you've had a little bit of an adventure of your own over the last five weeks with your own newborn, but uh, we'll talk to you a little bit today about your trip paragliding and retracing the monarch butterfly migration path. So before we get into that awesome conversation, can you tell us a little bit about your background and your impact from your words? Um, I uh, was born and raised in Toronto, Ontario. I became a fashion and advertising photographer pretty much straight out of high school. Um, I did that uh, for about six or seven years. working for myself and then just kind of got tired of that. Uh, even though it was my dream at the time, I, I, I yearned for some kind of, well, adventure because it just became routine as awesome of a job as that was. Um, and, uh, got an invite to document, uh, some guys skateboarding across Canada for breast cancer. So east from east to west. And I had a dream that night that I was actually skateboarding with them. And uh, 
the short of it is that I gave my notice of my apartment and uh, I chose to actually skateboard with them while documenting them skateboarding no across way. Canada. And I became the fourth guy of this of this team. And I moved out west by skateboard. Um, I gave away everything I owned except for my skateboard and camera uh, before going out west. And I never went back. I never went back. Uh, and that was in 2006. So, you know, let's just say about 15 years ago. And I've kind of just been... Uh, for better or for worse, just addicted to adventure and travel uh, and sharing that with the world ever since. And, um, you know, really over the last decade, what's taken a, a hold of me is the joy and mystery of free flight, uh, flying by paraglider, super simple, basically just a parachute that you hike up a mountain with. And then um, instead of going down, you launch and you go up. And then you go far and you go as far as you can and you can travel anywhere from, you know, let's say 10 miles to a hundred miles. And sometimes you can even land on a mountaintop and then sleep there and then fly along the next day. And that's my niche. That's the really specific thing that I do called Vol Bivouac. It's called Vol Bivouac. It stands for fly camp in French. It's so rare that they don't even have an English word for it. So I do this thing. Can you, and, can you explain that again? I'm sorry. Uh, what yeah. was that word? Sorry. It's, called, <laughs> yeah, no. it's called, it's called vol bivouac. So vol means fly in French and bivouac is a French word. It means to camp. And uh, I think it means to camp. It might mean something else, but bivy bivouac, you know, it's a, it's a word we use. And so basically just fly camp. And that's my specialty. That's my passion. It is to take everything that you've got uh, that you need to survive for anywhere from a week to a month to, in some cases, in my last expedition, five months, um, and carry that up a hill, pack it into your harness, and fly as far as you can, and then just repeat. And um, it's amazing. Uh, wow. You know, I, I started with flying, you know, uh, <clears throat> a couple days, maybe traveling 100 miles to, you know, in this last case, I didn't do the metric to uh, imperial conversion, but... You know, we flew from Mexico to Canada um, and it took a long time, but that was an insane distance and a distance that no one's ever, tra ever traveled before. How so long, how long did that actually take? Uh, that's what I was going to ask. Yeah, it, it, it took 150 days on the nose. Okay. And how many, how many miles? I know that's in America. Uh, you'll have, what is, what is, <laughs> you'll have to do the, you what, just divide it by 1.6. Um, how many kilometers? Two. 2,835 kilometers. So that's it should be about 2,000 miles, something like that. I'm yeah. And again, this, shocked. this specific expedition adventure is the, is the topic of this podcast. The documentary that documents this experience came out on February 1st. Mm -hmm. So it is available right now as you're listening to this. And so um, I, I, before we get into the, the, this specific adventure though, how did you get into paragliding? It's such a unique thing. It's dangerous. Yeah, it's I've always wondered that. Really, we, we, Bob and I had an early, very early episode with an uh, adventure photographer, an animal photographer that did some paragliding. But yeah, his, it seems like such a niche sport to get into. Right. All right. Well, thank you for asking because it is that is a tangent that I, I would love to go on and I, I kind of glossed over it. Um, in 2000, before I skateboarded across Canada when I was there in Toronto, um, uh, about a year before, 
um, I had a situation where I basically had to leave an apartment that I was staying in and I had to find a new apartment. It was the dead of winter. I was already six years into this job. I was kind of getting tired of it. And I, the, the thing that I liked the least is having to hunt for apartments, you know, to ask someone if I can pay them an extraordinary amount of money and to see if maybe that they think that I'm good enough to do that. And I did not want to look for an apartment in the dead of winter in Toronto. So I'm crashing on my cousin's couch, watching TV, which I rarely do, but I'm sleeping on his couch and I'm bored out of my mind. I'm watching TV and it was an episode of CSI, I believe. And it was a theme uh, where there was a, a paraglider or two and they were, you know, try, competing with each other. I knew nothing about paragliding. But I heard my brain say very quietly, you can't do that. <laughs> and I was reading like self-help books and stuff like that at the time. And uh, trying to get a hold of what's my brain doing that's not, you know, right, like the conscious thought of one plus one, like what's it doing in the background? And there was a statement that stuck with me and it said, you are at best your own worst enemy. And it was talking about how you are, uh, how we or I uh, hold myself back in this way and that way. And so you can't do that. So I was listening for that voice and I heard it say it when I saw the paraglider. I was just flicking through the channels that you can't do that. And I thought, okay, wait, 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 wait. Why can't I do this thing that I know absolutely nothing about? And so I made this list. Too fat, it's too expensive, you can't do that in Canada, you need a car, uh, you need a driver's license, it's super dangerous. The list went on and on. Apparently I was an expert on why I couldn't do this thing that I'd never done before, that I'd never even researched until that moment. And so I went online on Google, which was kind of new at the time, and I searched each and every one of these points. And I realized that I was dead wrong on every single count. And so what I ultimately concluded was, okay, it's none of these things. I'm just afraid. And that was okay. I'm totally okay with that. I'm afraid of things. But what I wasn't okay with was that I was unable to admit to myself that I was afraid. And so I, instead of just admitting my, to myself, I was afraid. And that was the reason I had all these reasons. And so I thought to myself, okay, that's not going to work for me. That's not going to work for me. If I'm, if I'm, you know, I need to at least be honest with myself. So not because I wanted to learn to paraglide, not because I thought it was going to change my life. I wanted to test like in, in, like in science class, I wanted to test myself and see what happens if I force myself to do one of these things that I'm lying to myself about. And so the short of it is it was winter in Canada. So I had to sign up for one in New Zealand, the other hemisphere, um, paragliding course. And two weeks later I was running off my very first cliff. That's it. And two I just, weeks? I, two weeks. Yeah. I signed up. And I, I, I flew down there. I got some gear and I, I said, I got to see what happens. I got to see what happens if I do the thing that I'm afraid of, but I'm too afraid to admit that I'm afraid of what's going to happen. What's going to happen to my brain? Is it going to change? And boy, oh boy, did it change. All I can describe it as is a feeling that I think everyone can relate to in their own way is just the feeling of completely falling in love, completely head over heels, falling in love. Nothing else matters. Tune everything else out. Hear this thing that I didn't know that I would love. All of a sudden, it's like the most important thing to me within seconds of my feet leaving the ground. And so I feel like I've cracked some sort of a huge code for myself. And I conclude after much thought that fear is precisely the same thing as love. It's just 
it's going from the unknown to the known. It's the same thing. So essentially, if I were to take, if I was ever feeling like I wanted to find something that I loved or feel a feeling of love, all I had to do was find something I was afraid of and bring it from the unknown into the known, whatever that is. Yeah. And so that was awesome news for me because I often felt, you know, kind of depressed or like I, I was kind of out of touch with like these feelings of love that I could sometimes feel, but there were so many things I was afraid of and I could identify any of those. And so I just kept doing them, talking to strangers, you know, striking up conversations. Oh, I'm going to go check out that place. I'm going to go, go travel over here. Every time I did something that I was afraid of, I was rewarded with a sensation of love and paragliding really just remained at the core for me. And I thought, well, you know what? I'm just going to keep taking paragliding and just push it further and further and further. And so that's how I got into paragliding because I was afraid of it. And why I stuck with it is because I loved it. And it represented this thing that I never wanted to forget, which is that fear is equal to love. Just when we apply an algorithm of going from unknown to known. Beautiful story. That's yeah. that's yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so, so to, I guess to fast forward a little bit, you now, you have this passion, you're skilled at it, and you decide to retrace the steps of the, the steps, the migration pattern of the monarch butterfly. Yeah. Before we get into that decision, that thought, how that entered your brain, can you give us a very quick, like, like you know, the 101 on the monarch butterfly, the migration pattern? For sure. So the monarch butterfly is uh, the world's furthest migrating butterfly by far. It has a total migra migratory route of about 7,000 miles from central Mexico all the way up to the Great Lakes of Canada and back. This little tiny thing that like has like lighter than a post-it note is doing this thing. Uh, like it puts most geese to shame, right? Um, yeah. And um, the craziest thing about it is that one monarch doesn't do it. It actually has to give birth and that one has to give birth and then that one has to give birth in order to make this thing happen. And so Wait. it gets crazier. What? It's doing it. It's doing a migration over four, four, four generations. But the craziest part is this. It doesn't just fly back to Mexico and stop when it feels like it's warm enough. No, it flies back to Mexico and it lands on the same bloody tree of the same bloody mountain where its great grandparent left one year earlier. It doesn't have Whoa. any notes. It doesn't have Google Maps, a GPS, <laughs> a compass. It doesn't have any of this. A butterfly somehow over three generations will make it all the way to Canada from Mexico, from central Mexico, not just from the border, from central Mexico. And then it'll fly all the way back to Mexico. One, the, the super, they call it the super generation, will fly all the way back to Mexico and end up at the exact same place where its great-grandparent overwintered one year earlier. And if they take a butterfly part of the way through its migration and they set it off course like a thousand miles east or west from wherever they took it halfway through its migration, it will correct. It will correct the course. It won't end up the same distance, but then... The, you know, with the deviation that the, that, yeah. the, that the people disturbed it by. No, it will actually adjust its line so that it ends up in the exact same place. 
there's only, I think, maybe four or five overwintering sites all in the same zone in central Mexico. And, um, and it has to make it to one of these very specific spots. And these specific spots, these are the size of a, uh, a, some of them are as small as like a children's playground at a school. They're not big. So it's an incredible accuracy. It's an incredible amount of, um, I don't want to talk too much because you asked me for the nuts and bolts. And so that's what it is. No, I'm so captivated. (laughs) I had no idea. So is that, there are a few, uh, I guess, species of animals that have what they've discovered is almost like a compass in their brain that actually has a little bit, that can be in tune to the magnetic poles. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. So yeah. is that how they do it? But yeah, I mean, so, it has to retain that basically precise Latin long in that and it's, pass that down through generations. Yeah. So, okay. Where, where do I start here? So it, uh, okay. So very basic knowledge here. Uh, back in the day, uh, before there was a compass, um, sailors used the stars to navigate in conjunction with time. So clocks were very important. Um, because they, a clock, like a grandfather clock, that was the original kind, the the pendulum clock on the ship with the star position could tell a sailor where's north effectively. And Mm -hmm. so they could make their way across without going circles in the Atlantic or whatever. So, um, my understanding is that we do know that the monarch has a clock that in conjunction with the position of the sun, a star, it can determine where's south. I'm flying south right now, or where's north. I'm flying north right now. Okay, that's that's pretty crazy. It's got a clock. You know, it doesn't have any batteries, but it's got a clock. That's crazy. But with just that, with just that ability, if you moved it off track by a thousand miles east or west, it would still keep that same original southern, southwest, southeast, whatever it is, trajectory, and it would end up a thousand miles off wherever it thought it was supposed to get to. Yeah. Right? So I gotta do this many miles, but I'm I'm still gonna go for it. So the fact that it can adjust and end up at the right spot, that's the mystery. Mm-hmm. Like that's the mystery. As if it wasn't crazy enough the butterfly does seven thousand miles. As if it wasn't crazy enough that they do it over four generations without any sort of notes or or, or memos that they can email themselves in the future yeah, so they right. don't forget. As if that's not crazy enough, right? They have this clock Okay, no big deal. They just have a little natural clock inside of them. But they have more than a clock. And the thing that's more than a clock, that's the mystery. That's the thing that even science today cannot completely wrap its head around. So there's this mystery. And it's this mystery to me that makes the monarch so exciting. Because I love, I love these reminders that we don't know that much. And I love this reminder on top of all this that... Things can be passed down intergenerationally. You know, you hear a lot about, you know, um, for instance, just quickly to talk about, you know, uh, the First Nations people of Canada, the United States, for instance, and how um, they may be suffering from like intergenerational trauma, you know, crimes committed to uh, their great grandparents, you know, many moons ago, affecting them today. And a lot of people say, oh, that's hogwash, you know, just get a job, you know, but no, look. Look, look at this example of intergenerational wisdom being carried down the line. It's genetic. It's, it's, it's more than we think. It's not just pull up your bootstraps and, 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 and become your own thing. No, we are a part of something that is much bigger than the self. 
you know, we don't just get to choose, you know, oh yeah, I'm me, I can do whatever I want. No, I mean, we have some control, but ultimately we're just a, a flicker in a much bigger design. And the Monarch helps me put that into perspective way like uh in a way more clear and, and and tangible form than just the hypothetical you know uh you know of well maybe it's true you know uh here's some examples from this and that like the monarch is doing it right now yeah that's fascinating that fascinating is. and so obviously you have deep interest with the monarch butterfly when did you pair this interest with the butterfly with the interest and passion and love for paragliding and decide that you were going to follow their migration pattern. I it it was an incredible, incredible, incredible moment. I was down in Mexico, um, in central Mexico, paragliding at this world uh, famous paragliding site called Valle de Bravo, and uh, uh, people from all around the world go there for the months of uh, December, January. Um, November is February as well, but December, January, because the conditions are so consistent and so good for those months. And um, so I'm flying around and I'm doing my cross country thing. I'm training, I'm flying 40, 50, 60 kilometers most days. And at some point I'm flying back from this volcano and uh, trying to get back home. And I end up landing really high up in this, in this kind of elevated plateau area because the clouds um, came in and then there was no more sun and I couldn't find lift. So I had to land. And so I'm packing up my stuff, you know, I can hear the road, can hear the traffic. I'm like, okay, that's no problem. I'll just, I'll just hike back to the road. And so I'm just going to follow this trail and I'm kind of in this forested area. And, um, all of a sudden I look down and I see these butterflies and there's these butterflies are everywhere. And, uh, all of a sudden I, I realized like, whoa, I'm part of like, this is like some global warming stuff. Like this is like some crazy mad butterfly massacre. Like I'm literally walking on what appear to be monarch butterflies, but there's no butterflies anywhere. You know, there's a couple here, but they all look like they're kind of dying. They're all on the ground. What What's going on here? And uh, I'm overcome by this kind of sadness for just, you know, what am I doing as a human? Like maybe I should be an activist. And, uh, and then all of a sudden the clouds that originally sank me as a paraglider pilot, they part and these beams of light start coming into the forest. And as these beams of light start coming into the forest, the forest just comes alive. All of these trees that were just brown and these branches that were brown, they were actually, I realized the undersides of butterfly wings and they start, they open up, they open up and they're yellow, uh, yellow and orange and red and mostly orange. And, and now all of a sudden they're flying all over the place in the sunlight. They just needed the sunlight. There's so many butterflies flying right now that I can't even hear the traffic anymore. I can't hear the wind anymore. There's millions, literally maybe more than, you know, but millions minimum of butterflies swirling around this forest. Just that's all you can hear. And they're all these monarch butterflies. And so I realized like, okay, <laughs> yeah, there's some dead butterflies on the ground here, but that's just, that's just like a, a, a 0.1% of the butterflies that are living here right now. How did these butterflies get here? And so I had to go tell people and people are like, yeah, duh, the, the monarch butterflies. And I realized like, this is a thing. Everyone knew about it, except for me, it seemed they go down there the same as we paraglider pilots went down there. They have the same conditions down there as they have in Canada in the summer. And so um, that be, that's where my fascination began. And that's where all my research began. 
that so so you have this idea what is the pathway so mexico to canada you said they start in central mexico so i guess they cut through central united states and where do they end up in canada uh so they they kind of fan out so they start at these like very like pinpointy areas kind of just let's just say around mexico city right and then uh they end up in a very wide area. It's kind of like a funnel, you know, with the wide top and then the, the narrow bottom. Um, and for sake of just simplicity, they cover the Great Lakes. Uh, you know, the whole Great Lakes, think of the whole Great Lakes region. Like they're west of the Great Lakes, they're east of the Great Lakes, they fly over the Great Lakes. Uh, some of them don't don't actually traverse the Great Lakes and they stay in the States. Some of them do and they go into Canada. Um, sure. So it's basically just around the Great Lakes. Okay. Uh, a, ra- a big ring of orange around the Great Lakes is, is where they are. And um, they take a, a beeline for that uh, right through what's called the Corn Belt uh, in the United States. So I'm not going to list a bunch of states off because I know I'll forget a few. Uh, but they go up through Texas and then they go north of that. And then they'll be going through like the Illinois. Midwest. Yeah, that, the Midwest is, is sort where of they, the, Where yeah. they're growing the corn. And, uh, you know, it's, and, and so, um, that's what they do. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. So now that you're planning this out, I'm sure a lot went into it. How long did it take you to plan? And can you just give us maybe some of the, the primary considerations for planning a trip like this? You know, I, I want it like, I love the, to think about the planning part because, well, I'd been thinking about this journey. So I discovered the Monarchs there in 2015. And I went back mm-hmm. there a couple of times uh, since then before doing this journey. Uh, I wanted to do this ever since 2015. And um, I planned, uh, you know, I, I dreamt about it. I dreamt about it. I dreamt about it. Finally, I decided like, okay, I got to do this thing. And I, I lost so much sleep over it. I planned, I fretted, I, you know, I did, it took a lot of work to get the sponsors on board because, you know, I, no matter how successful I am with my projects, I think I just come across as this crazy guy that's like bit off way more than he can chew and that I'm just a liability. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how much success it's, I'm always going to be that crazy guy that, you know, I, and, and so, um, it takes a lot of work to get, to get financing, to do this kind of a thing. And, um, and to, to manage it so that it's affordable with, the, with the, the budgets that we're able to spend. And um, all of this to say that when I got down to our original start point in El Paso, Texas, every little bit of planning I did went entirely out the window. <laughs> And, and I, I can go into that, but what I, I really want to emphasize, because I feel like this is something that a lot of people can relate to, we can plan and plan and plan and plan and plan. And I did, you know, I, 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 I was hardcore for, let's say, half a year on this and really softcore for several years on this. But when I took a look at the map and I took a look at what I was proposing to do, and I looked at that if I was going to start from El Paso, Texas, that I was going to have to go through the White Sands Missile Range of New Mexico which is completely illegal. And I was going to have to start my paragliding journey by walking about 250 miles to get around this thing. I realized that I, I picked the wrong path and I needed to change everything about my journey to make this possible and, you know, somewhat legal. And so, um, 
you know, that, I mean, obviously paired with the other thing that everyone can relate to this, we, we were down there March 20th of 2020, uh, we got down there. They they allowed us to cross the border ten days before they shut the border back to Canada, and so now we're doing this thing, and all like all the stores are closing. We can't even buy peanut butter, you know, ramen noodles. All the share shelves are empty. Fortunately, we're not big toilet paper people, but uh, <laughs> you know that wouldn't have been a possibility either. I mean, plan, 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 and then boom you know, reality, you don't know the realities like the white sands missile range, like the COVID, any of that until you're right there in the moment doing the thing. So don't waste too much time planning, just go do it and be open to that. The start might be a little bit rough. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, well, at at a minimum, what, what are some of the dangers that you had to anticipate and maybe incorporated the planning or, I mean, and this could just speak to paragliding, uh, in general, what are some of the dangers that you face doing something like this? Well, you know, it's funny because, you know, paragliding is a really great sport because it kind of, it kind of feels dangerous and it kind of looks dangerous. So it's good for like videos and photos, but it's really not that dangerous. So it has that, that advantage. Um, what makes it dangerous inside of what I do uh, is that I am, um, well, I'm often flying over regions where I can't land, which is a huge no-no in paragliding because you may have to land at any given moment given what's going on with the weather and the thermals and what have you. You don't have control, a lot of control over how long your flight's going to be. It could be a half hour. It could be three minutes. It could be three hours. It could be eight hours. So you always want to make sure that you have an out. And I don't always have an out when I want to fly the lines that I fly. So that's, that's number one. Another really big thing though is that you know, the most dangerous part of flying paragliders is launching paragliders. Because when you're way up high in the air, you're not going to hit the air and, and get hurt if something weird happens. You're going to get hurt if something weird happens when you're a few meters, or a few feet off the ground. And so the launches have to be really, really good. And in my case, I think that over the course of 69 launches on this last expedition, I launched from maybe two, maybe three max established launches Every other launch, I literally had to find myself on the side of a mountain and then clear of stones and twigs and and sometimes larger plants to be able to get my paraglider off. And usually that wasn't done very well, partly because I don't want to hurt the environment too much, but also because I don't have that much energy and time to make a perfect launch 69 times over. I'm launching off of the crappiest mountainside conditions, and that can get really, really dangerous as well. Finally, the landings. You don't control where you land and is, you know, hoping that you don't land in trees or cactus or, you know, a, a stream which could kill you or a river which would kill you. You got to you got to land, you know, somewhere safe. So a field. Well, a lot of the United States is private land. And, you know, uh, I I'll say that I didn't find that people were aggressive or I didn't find that I was being shot at, for instance. But, you know, it, like my my mom's main concern was that that was what was going to happen. And that's always a possibility. And you do hear horror stories of that kind of a thing. Um, fortunately, where I was landing, usually people didn't even see me if I was on private land. But, you know, there's that variable too. You have to contend with whatever farmer, whatever billionaire, whatever, you know, individual is going to have a word about you landing on their property. And so there's a number of dangers, you know, there's a number of risks that we take 
uh, you know, going about something like this. But and yeah, it, it, well, it, so that's just that's just the paragliding. Like that's yeah. not the that's not the other parts of the expedition. So yeah, because well, you have a, a really cool map, twelve by eighteen adventure map that you have on your website that you can actually zoom in and look at. And I know part of you said about 2,800 total kilometers of which mm-hmm. you almost did 700 kilometers just in hiking. Yeah. And it looks like a big chunk of that was in either northern Arizona slash southern Utah. Yeah. So what happened there? Was there just not enough thermals to or mountains to... And, and I'm sorry, Benjamin, yeah. before you ask that, I just... Yeah. I don't know if we if we really gave a clear explanation of paragliding we're talking about thermals and we're talking about you know finding new jump points can you give us like two sentences like or you know just briefly (laughs) i don't want to limit you to a certain (laughs) amount of words i I wish that this stuff was simpler yeah just to give people idea of what we're talking about when we say you know you needed thermals you needed right okay so paragliding is uh the simplest form of free flight Free flight just means that you're not using any electricity, any gas, any sort of energy other than Mother Nature. And um, so with paragliding, I'm carrying my aerodynamic uh, kind of delicate parachute up a hill on my back. It's in a backpack, got a harness in the backpack as well. Strap myself in. I launch from the side of that hill. If I don't find any thermals, which I'll describe in a second, I'll be on the ground within about five minutes. I've got about five minutes to find a thermal. A thermal is an area uh, in the air where um, there's rising air. This is happening because the sun is out. It's heating the ground. The ground is becoming too hot in a given area and it's being forced to release its heat. It's like it's getting angry and it needs to cool down and it, and it, and it gets rid of its anger by sending it up in a hot column of air up into the sky until it cools down. This is called a thermal. These things are invisible. That's what makes them hard to find. But if you can find one, it's like an elevator to the sky. And uh, now when you find one, there's all sorts of challenges with thermal. Sometimes they're too little. Sometimes they're too rough because they're too fast. You have to get into it. Usually there's turbulence around the outside of it. And you once you get into it, you turn and you corkscrew and you corkscrew and you go all the way up. And on a perfect day, it'll create a cloud at the top. That's where your cumulus clouds are coming from. When you see the the clouds that look like they're at the beginning of the Simpsons, those are the tops of thermals. Um, And so sometimes you can sort of cheat and you can just look for the clouds and you know where that there's going to be a climb. Um, But sometimes it's tricky because sometimes a cloud is over there, but you're over here and you don't realize that there's some wind that's blowing that thermal on a diagonal to create that cloud up there. So you've got to take all that kind of stuff into account. And then when you're thermaling, you've got to be thermaling and allowing it to drift you on this diagonal. Sometimes that diagonal is taking you way off course and it's not worth the climb. So there's so many things that are happening here. But ultimately, you climb up the mountain, you fly off, you look for the invisible thermal, you find it. You climb up to the sky and you fly on. Birds use this technology, this ancient, uh, you know, uh, form of flight. This is how birds of prey fly. They don't flap. Um, And this is how butterflies are, uh, the monarch butterflies are traveling across the United States too. They're using thermals. And this is not something that you can do every day. This is something you can only do on a thermic day and um, a day that's not too windy. So very much like the butterfly, I was bound to the weather 
and you know sometimes having to sit uh days out for you know one two weeks even at a time wow wow all right yeah that that is that clears it up um thank you your website has some really great photos too of your trip along with that interactive map that we were talking about earlier and you can really see the little pod you're in which i guess do you put that pod on after you get in the air uh, kind of, yeah, uh, because you couldn't run with it, right? Yeah. Um, it it, it kind of just hangs around. You, you, you put on the harness, uh, so that's the part that your sort of shoulders and your butt is in. You okay. put that on, uh, and that connects to the glider. You launch, and then as soon as you get out, you basically just kick uh, your leg out, and you grab the bottom of that neoprene pod with yeah. your foot, and then you bring the other foot into it. And okay. it's just designed to be able to be got in 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 of and out of easily in the air because you have to you also have to kick yourself out of it before you land because you need your feet for that okay yeah yeah they're pretty cool looking i always wondered that because i always thought like all right they're running but they're also in a pod and i have no idea how to get from a to b yeah no it's you that just, helped very it, much you, you just get in and out yeah these pictures so, are, are so good. If for yeah, those no, listening, like, <laughs> definitely go to the website and check that out. The website is uh, Fly Marnica. Ma- I'm sorry, Monarca. Monarca, yeah. Monarca.com. Okay. Fly Monarca, yeah. Yeah. Uh, All right. So, <laughs> okay. So, well, I'm sorry. I, 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 I missed the last question now. They, they, well, yeah, we had yeah, so Elliot, go back to paragliding. And then I was asking about the, the hiking situation. Right. There is a good chunk of it, maybe like a quarter of your entire trip that was actually hiking. Yeah. And is I'm guessing now that we have that 101 on paragliding, that is because mm-hmm. you didn't have thermals or height to reach those thermals. Yeah. Um, so, so as a general rule, and so this is something that is uh, really unique with me inside of anyone else who does these kinds of things, because there are other great pilots out there that are also attempting these kinds of journeys in different places, different parts of the world. But uh, my claim to fame is actually my level of patience. Um, (laughs) When people want to um, do these kinds of things, like I was saying, you know, you get non-fly days, you can have, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten in a row. And that's what makes these things really crazy because it attacks your brain because you're literally doing nothing. In my case, just practicing banjo on a mountaintop somewhere waiting for the weather to change. That can take a long time. So in uh, the cases of other uh, fantastic athletes, they'll just walk when they can't fly and they'll make distance. And I understand, you know, I understand the the appeal. I don't want to do that. I want to be as close as possible to the butterfly as I can be. Butterflies aren't going to walk. They're going to wait. So I'll wait. In, unless I absolutely cannot fly for one reason or another, I will just wait for weeks at a time if I have to. Now, in this, the circumstance of uh, Arizona, in northern Arizona, uh, yes, flying conditions were tough in Arizona. And yes, I spent probably more than a third of my trip in Arizona. Um, even though it was, you know, uh, less than a quarter of the total distance because of the conditions and the amount of waiting I had to do. But um, there's a couple things that'll keep me from flying and I have no choice to walk. So that happened in Arizona. One, I landed in an area where there was nowhere for me to be able to launch. So uh, I was north, uh, I was basically just kind of northeast of the Grand Canyon uh, south of Page, Arizona, and uh, on the Navajo Nation, and there was some very, very inhospitable cliff uh, faces to my 
uh, east to my right and I couldn't launch from any of them. And so I had to just walk out of that zone. And then very quickly, I found myself north of the Grand Canyon in the Vermilion Cliffs area, which is now a national monument. You're not allowed to launch or land in national monuments or parks. So I was forced to walk across that. I walked all the way to an area where I, I felt that the mountains were high enough. They weren't very high. We're talking like maybe 300 feet, very, very low. I tried to launch three days in a row from a place called Canab uh, in Utah, just on the... Um, uh, north end of the of the Arizona uh, Utah border, Kanab, and I tried my hardest, and I just could not get out of there because of the weather conditions. So I had to walk to some higher mountains that would allow me to to get into the thermals. When you get too low, they don't work well, and that was a problem because the higher mountains were in Zion National Park, yeah. and so I had to again walk across Zion National Park to get to the closest high mountains which were north of St. George, Utah. The area was called uh, uh, Tokerville or Laverkin, Utah. And that's where I was able to get going again with the yeah. flying. And so it was just because I was in a flat area that was either flat or it was a, a protected area. And I was just not allowed to. Um, so right there, I racked up probably about 300 kilometers. About half of the total walking on the journey happened right then and there. Wow. And the, the other instances where I have to walk is simply because I land somewhere and I have, and again, I have to hike, I have to land, like, um, I have to launch from a mountain. So that either means that if I landed really close to where I launched from, in many instances, I would actually walk back, back south and try to hike back up that same mountain and try the next day. That happened a lot of times, but if I flew, you know, some distance, then it would probably be easier for me to hike to the next high point than hike back. So a lot of times I might fly, let's just say 40 kilometers. Uh, that's not super far in terms of cross country, but it was a decent flight on this trip. Um, Cause remember, I don't choose my days. I fly every day and a lot of days are bad weather days. So 40 clicks is not bad. Um, and then I might walk an additional 10 uh, to get to my next mountain. And then I'll camp on top of the mountain that night. And then the next day I'll try again. Hopefully I can get another 40 and keep going kind of like that. And that, that adds up, you know, yeah. incredible. That is, uh, that's actually, it's you mentioning KNAB. That is the second time in probably three weeks that we've had someone mention KNAB Utah on our podcast. We had one that's being released, uh, tomorrow actually. Oh, wow. That he's, he spent an entire two weeks, three weeks in KNAB Utah with, uh, ranchers. Yeah. Yeah, no, Canab is a Canab. I I thought that was great. I love I I liked Canab. I just I did not like it for paragliding. Yeah, uh, that's a pretty cute little town. With some really epic rocks surrounding it. Really, really beautiful. The, oh the yeah, well that whole, is just. I I understand why you had to walk a lot of that because it seems like Southern Utah is all national park or national monument. So much, and you know, just um, you, you really got to look at the mountains. You know, the reason I couldn't follow the exact migration of the monarch butterflies because they fly through a flat section of of, uh, of the united states um i i need the mountains because i can't just tow up or use an engine to get up you know monarchs they can flap their wings some to get elevation and then they can use the thermals i can't flap mm -hmm. my paraglider that would yes. not work out well no. so i had to fly f follow the mountains and if the mountains are too low it's just too hard to connect with that first thermal because instead of having five minutes to find it you've got 
10 seconds, you know, and the lower you get, the smaller they are. Um, and so in certain circumstances, yes, I, I did. I did have to walk. Yeah. Where does this experience fall in your uh, overall experiences of, of paragliding? Is this like a, is this a really significant one? Is this a major paragliding experience or is this just, a, you know, a, thing, a similar one that you've done times before? In, in, in as far as like distance goes and the, the logistics and things like that uh you know it's crazy because i feel like um i could easily say that this was kind of the climax you know of my career if you will like it's mm -hmm. so unreasonable what i did and uh like even just thinking about it right now and uh i never thought i could do it but that said i thought that about every expedition before <laughs> this one and i would have said the exact same thing yeah right so it always just kind of feels like a step up in a in a way um although it almost feels too easy in the sense that each step up has always just been longer distance staying out and surviving longer longer distance staying out and surviving longer and on and on and now i can't i can't outdo this distance wise i can't outdo this uh, time-wise. So it's an interesting question because where it falls, I can look to the future and I can tell you that it's, it's never going to get longer. It's never going to get, you know, not just because I've got certain responsibilities as a dad now, it's, it, it's just completely unreasonable to, you know, be sitting alone in the wilderness, you know, not always alone, but you know, for the most part, you know, waiting on mountains for weather to change, being so stubborn like that, playing the banjo for, you know, half a year at a time. I can't do that anymore. Um, so it does stand alone as a sort of a, a peak, if you will, of duration and distance. Um, so it does stand that way. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think that really what this took, this didn't feel super dangerous to me. What was, uh, compared to some of my other stuff, like I flew, um, to, I separate expeditions by two years. So two years earlier, I flew from, um, the Montana U.S. Uh, Canadian Canada border, where this one ended, I started at the at the finish line of this last one, and I flew north as far as I could, basically along the entire length of the Canadian Rockies. Now that was crazy, because I'm also dealing with national parks, Banff and Jasper and stuff like that, yeah. and really gnarly mountains through that whole thing. So that one I was definitely like you know literally like pooping nugs like while flying. And uh, prior to that, two years prior to that, I flew from Vancouver to Calgary, which again said that it was said it could not be done it it could be done it just took 39 days so this feels like a, a a peak in some in some way but at the same time i'm not just gonna go and do any something that's simpler or easier for me so what does that look like i have no idea and i think that's a really valid question Wh where do you go from the top when you're not done trying to top out mm -hmm. So I, I guess I, I, it's a great question, and it's one that I really can't even answer. Well, I'm sure still have some time to think about. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, but before before we wrap things up, I have I have two questions. One, um, what was probably the scariest moment, or at least most frustrating moment during your expedition? And then on the flip side of that, what was your what was your highlight? Wow, I think that the scariest moment really um and this i don't think it will sound cliche but i think it's also a really good takeaway for anybody 
uh, no matter what they're doing. Really, the scariest moment was just starting. You know, we, uh, you know, my, my wife, Lindsay, uh, came down to document the expedition. She was living in our van, uh, throughout most of the expedition that she's able to follow. And, um, you know, we had a, a general start date that we told the sponsors, but we could have started it a week earlier, a week later. It didn't really matter. It just had to happen. And, um, every day I put off starting because, oh, I got to fix this. Oh, I should do another test flight. Oh, I should do that. You know, and I, you know, I just, I, I realized like, I'm just going to keep doing this in perpetuity. It's going to be August, September, and I'm not going to have started this expedition. I'll always have a good reason. And so at some point I just had to just start for the sake of starting and not because I was ready, just because it had to start. And that was really the most frightening thing. And also worth noting is that literally like Two seconds after taking that first step, so I hadn't even taken my second physical step yet away from the fence that separates Mexico from uh, from from the United States, I wasn't afraid anymore. I was excited. In fact, fear had transformed itself into love once again in the moment that I started the expedition. And so uh, really the scariest thing was just starting. And I suppose it's because, you know, starting means that it's happening. And if it happens, it means I can fail. Um, but at the end of the day, um, that will probably always be the scariest thing for me is just throwing my hat over the wall so that I have to go get it. I, I like your, I like your world philosophy. I like how much thought you put into, uh, these things. And so, with this experience, I'm sure that you learned something, right? I'm sure you've now reflected on that experience and you have something maybe that you feel as though you learned in some way. Some knowledge so, nugget. Right, knowledge nugget. If you if you could speak to somebody that's maybe aspiring to do something similar to you, whether it's get started in paragliding in general or uh, perform something like you did where you have this, this distance, uh, what would what have you learned, whether it was this experience or something previous that you would tell them? Well, I think that the thing that I, I would want to share the most, and this isn't necessarily something I'm 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 sure I can find an example from uh, of this within the fly the spectrum of fly monarcha, um, but it, it, I feel like the probably the greatest lesson to share that is uh, also very relatable uh, to anything uh, is something that I learned much earlier. Um, right before that trip skateboarding across Canada, or sorry, right after the trip skateboarding across Canada, because I didn't get into it, but I didn't want to skateboard across Canada. I could skateboard. I wanted to fly a powered paraglider across Canada. And, uh, that was my original idea. And so, and so the, uh, I, I, I spent a year putting all of these plans together and I had this commitment to, to start powered paragliding across Canada on May 1st of 2006, I was going to set this record. I was going to make a name for myself. My whole uh, adventure photography career was about to, to, to get, you know, literally launched. And um, that didn't work out. I couldn't get the sponsors. I, I couldn't get the equipment. I couldn't get the training. I was a failure in that regard. And two months prior to May 1st, two months is the amount of time I would have had to give my landlord notice on my apartment to leave legally. I got a call to document the skateboarding across Canada expedition. And I realized in that moment, like, wait a second, I can't power paraglide across Canada. That's way above me, but I could skateboard across Canada. 
And so I did that thing. And that thing taught me so much that I needed to know about teamwork, about uh, perseverance, um, about struggle, about sponsorship, um, about fundraising. And two years later, or sorry, I guess three years later in 2009, I flew a powered paraglider across Canada, which is crazy. And so the, the thing is that I see now, I couldn't see it in the moment. I'm like, I don't want to skateboard across Canada. I'm para, powered paraglider across Canada or nothing or nothing. But that wasn't my path. And that wasn't even a, like a, a somewhat reasonable path. And so I see the the skateboarding opportunity that was handed to me, that the universe literally handed to me at the last day that I would have had to have given notice on my apartment, that it was, it was the step. It was a step. So the big idea is you have some goal and that's great. And there's no limit to what that goal can be, but there may be some steps that you can't see on the way to that goal. And to accept every opportunity as a step, even if it feels like it's in the wrong direction, it's actually not because it involves some kind of experience. It involves some kind of learning. And that growth is what's going to enable that final, final vision to come to fruition. You're, you're getting me pumped up, man. The, I, the, know, the, I, know. I So I just, last, last month, I finished this book called The Obstacle is the Way. It's by Ryan Holiday. Mm. And it is, it's an awesome it's book. And it's a stoic book. It talks about, it, it's a lot of, a lot of the source material is, is from Marcus Aurelius and his book, Meditations. But in this book, there's a story. Um, well, so The Obstacle is the Way. The general philosophy is the impediment to action advances action. What stands in the way becomes the way. Hmm. And he talks about one of the chapters, he discusses Amelia Earhart and her experience wanting to fly around the world. And I don't know, maybe you know this already, but she, uh, she, was, she was a woman. And back yeah. then it was hard for right. women to do things like that. And yeah. so she was trying to figure out how she could possibly get a plane and fly around the world. And uh, somehow this opportunity came, on, came to her lap and came, came in front of her. And it was... Uh, it was like sort of some sort of secondary, and I wish I, I, I didn't forget it completely, but it was some sort of secondary type of flying experience where, yeah, you're a woman, so we'll let you do this. And yeah. she took it. You know, she took it. She didn't, she didn't wait. She didn't wait for the perfect opportunity to come her way. She yeah. knew where she wanted to go in the general direction, and she saw an in, and she just jumped on it, and it all ultimately involved into uh, her experiences that that we're all well aware of now. Yeah. And so, yeah, beautifully said. I really like that philosophy. That's great, great, great advice uh, for pretty much life in general. So, yeah, that's that's a good one. <laughs> so, and, and a good book, uh, Benjamin. I think maybe The Obstacle is the Way. You might, I think you might really enjoy it. It seems like you might, so. Yeah, it sounds like a, a, a good, uh, uh, like a great story or a great well, book, yeah. The, the, I do want to uh, let you have the opportunity to talk about your uh highlight of your trip oh i think you know i think that the 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 funny thing is that inside of the spirit of all that i would say that the highlight was probably that second step okay i was gonna say because that that right there was yeah like i all of a sudden i went from the feeling as, as fearful as i possibly could to as in love as i possibly could and, uh, you know, I got to say too, I feel like that in that moment too, like I, that love really is, I mean, 
it's 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 all encompassing all encompassing but it, it really feels like in that moment it's actually love for myself which is a, 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 a something that I, I really try to find as much as I can because I know that I need to have that in order to give that and um and so in that moment like just to go from being so terrified to being so in love uh I feel like both of those uh, you know, scariest moments and the, the the best moments were literally the first, you know, the 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 before the first step and the moment after the first step, uh, literally the step uh, away from that fence uh, at Mexico. Awesome. Yes, incredible. Were there any moments where you felt like you were not finished? <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, <laughs> yeah, probably like the like after the first flight. You know, because I flew from this uh, <clears throat> this Montezuma Canyon. You know, again, no one had ever flown from there before. It's not. It was a. It was a U.S. border lookout uh, to be able to observe the 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 border, and I just flew from this wacky canyon wall, and I was blasted into these crazy winds, and I literally just had my ass handed to me. Like I was so <laughs> I was so afraid. I was just like a monarch butterfly in a in a shit storm, and I landed just you know, by car a few minutes away from where I launched, you know, by foot, you know, a few hours, um, in this cactus field. And I was just grateful to be on the ground. Like, and I, I thought, what have I got myself into? This is not a good idea. I am not used to flying in the desert. This is, I'm like, I'm in way over my head here. It is out of my league. And so again, you know, first flight, but then guess what? Second flight. Awesome. Like, wow, I'm so, I'm so connected. So, so grateful that I waited for that second flight. So it just, it just goes on and on like that. And that's really the, the most incredible part about this kind of an expedition is that I can get those highs and those lows just like daily. Mm -hmm. And And that's, uh, that's also literal and figurative. Yeah, true. Yeah. Uh, And so, um, but you know what? What else can I say? Uh, getting up to above twenty thousand feet above sea uh, above sea level uh, for the first time in my life. Again, not too far after that first flight, just uh, east of Tucson, Arizona. I was uh, cruising like at jumbo jet height, you know. Um, and you know, shoot, the funniest thing: the end of the expedition, right, right up there, north of Eureka, Montana, at the border. I landed. I'm so stoked. I uh, I'm gonna get some pizzas and I'm packing up my glider and I can't believe that I've I that this has happened. It feels surreal. I'm tired as all heck. And um, at some point, I just put my backpack on and as I do that, I feel this feeling that I've never really felt before. And I can only describe it as it felt as though my head was a balloon and someone had just pricked it very lightly and the air was just letting out of it like the pressure was releasing but the most important part of that is to explain that i didn't know that my head was a balloon until that happened does that make sense yeah like i didn't realize that i my head was under this pressure literally my head and then all of a sudden as if there was like this gentlest little tap or prick like put in my unaware balloon head and then I was free. I, w- I was I was free because there was no way in heck that I wasn't going to finish this thing, even though I had to wait at the end there in horrible weather, horrible, horrible conditions. I'd be waiting five days between flight, eating nothing but blueberries, completely out of food, um, which was only peanut butter anyway. So I'm doing bad. 
and just sitting eating blueberries that I later realized are huckleberries, trying to make sure that the bears don't get to my blueberry stash. And sounds like very much eat a lot. Yeah, you know, and uh, yeah, and uh, except I, I didn't venture into uh, anything cra- too crazy. Um, and uh, and then finally just being being done with it and realizing like, okay, this is this is crazy. Like this should never have happened. It happened. Here we are. Okay, let's go edit a movie now. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, so let's let's talk about let's talk about that. So again, we said it in the beginning of the the episode, but your documentary is out now. Where can people watch watch it, download it, stream it, and all that good stuff? The best way uh, to see it is at flymonarca.com. It will be in festivals all over the world. Um, uh, starting in a few days, actually, it'll uh, be screening in Chandler, Arizona. Um, but uh, it the best way is flymonarca.com. The reason is that um, when you get it there, you support uh, my work and my wife's work, but also you get to see all these extras that you won't see anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's more, even more extras than there is uh, film. And I put a lot of time and energy into those um, to really give the value and to kind of explode on ideas that I couldn't really get into in the in the film. Yeah. And I think, you know, for people listening, it's one thing to talk about it and, and just absorb this information audibly. But I think it, yeah, the, the documentary, seeing it, the visuals of the, the experience, the flying, the butterflies, everything is really going to amplify uh, this story and this, yeah. this experience. And so. As we're recording this, it has not yet been released. But as of the release of this episode, it is available everywhere. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Benjamin. So, yeah. Yeah. And do you have anything else to add? Well, you know, uh, it, it, and even if you don't see the film, um, the, the greatest thing that you could do um, if you're hearing this is just to plant some milkweed in your garden because I didn't get into it and I don't have to get into it. But the only uh, food source that monarch butterflies can lay their larvae on, which is the caterpillars that become the butterflies, um, is milkweed. And that is becoming uh, less and less all across the United States. Uh, people don't want it in their gardens um, just because they want something else. Uh, farmers are using, uh, you know, monoculture techniques to grow their corn and all that kind of stuff. A lot of uh, herbicide and the milk, it's coming at the expense of the milkweed, which is uh, a native plant and it's a beautiful plant and it smells mm-hmm. nice um, and the monarchs need it. So, um, we're seeing a huge decline, uh, about 90% in the last 20 years uh, of this species because of these practices. It's not just global warming and stuff. It's just because we don't have the milkweed to sustain uh, the, the numbers that they need. And now we're at the point that there's so few numbers that one really, really big storm could literally wipe out the species forever. So we need to make sure that their numbers are higher so that they can uh, do what they do and do what they've been doing for millions and millions of years and continue to inspire the future generations the way that they've inspired me and the way that I've hoped that they've inspired you today. You can get free milkweed. Um, just visit uh, our website, flymonarca.com. There'll be links there to, to places in the United States that um, if you just send them a self-addressed envelope, um, they will send you free milkweed seeds that you can plant in your yard like oh, today. That's awesome. Oh, um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm doing that. I'm absolutely doing yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yep. I would love monarch butterflies in my in my yard. That yeah, totally. sounds awesome. Yeah, right, right, right. Totally. My my daughter would absolutely love it. Yeah, yeah. That's 
Yeah, very cool, man. Thank you. Thank you for the story. We're not letting you go yet, though. Uh, okay. We we have a rapid fire round. Okay. Um, so there's five questions. All right. You can answer them as fast as you like. You can give whatever answers you'd like. And yeah, and then we'll wrap up after that. Elliot, do you want to go first? Yeah. Okay. Benjamin, what is the first word that comes to your mind when you hear the word travel? Adventure. What travel book has had the biggest influence on your life? Ooh. Uh, Into Thin Air. Yes. Uh, from these aspects of travel, what has the biggest impact on your experiences? Landscape, history, architecture, food, or people? Mm, people. Uh, that answer is Most common. is overwhelmingly popular. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, with, it's true. It is true. It's very yeah. true. Uh, with a short answer, tell us one thing travelers should not do. Oh, <laughs> that's too many things. Uh, <laughs> that's why the, the with a short answer is in the beginning there. <laughs> there are there are uh, should not. Um, I like it. Should should not should not travel to uh, places that they've heard of before. Ooh. Ooh. So and, and, and to to be very specific, if there's a bunch of destinations that that you're supposed to go to on a map when you go to a country and you get this brochure at the airport, put an X over each of those destinations and go to all the places in between. That's beautiful. Yeah, I like that idea a yeah, lot. I yeah. think that would that would make your experience so unique. Yeah, yeah right. That'd be fun. Very cool. And then the last one is what? What is one piece of advice you took to yourself ten years ago? <sighs> um. Don't worry. You're not throwing your life away. Uh the experiences that you're gaining through travel and adventure uh, are worth their weight in gold. Love it. Love it. Wise yeah. words. Yeah. Wise words. Benjamin, thank you again for joining us. We had, it was an awesome conversation. I'm excited to see the documentary. And we hope to, we hope to have you back on in the future for your next adventure. Oh, yeah, that's, I, I was going to say, I think that's a good idea. You have such, you, you have a pretty uh, deep, adventure history there i don't know if that sentence went well together but you, sure. you kind of you guys kind of got the gist of it right right but yeah so let's do it again sometime benjamin thank you for your time oh today. it's been so fun talking to you guys thank you very much he gives a whole new meaning to the term float like a butterfly doesn't he? i know that's <laughs> uh, fine yeah yeah. It's, he is he is very very passionate about the project about paragliding and he's got a lot of love for everything and i like his philosophy on life in general which i mean you mentioned that in the show agreed yeah i a question for you is there ever a possibility that you'll attempt paragliding i would love to yeah yeah i think it's i think it's a really cool uh adventure thing to do i mean i told you i'm going i'm getting flying lessons this year that's true yeah no it's out of the question for me uh, you're, <laughs> like, you're afraid of heights no i'm not afraid of heights i'm not afraid of heights i'm afraid of uh like hitting hitting me in ground at a, at a high velocity that's really <laughs> that's really what i'm afraid i mean of. you're in a parachute 
Yeah, I don't know. Um, okay. Now that I have kids, man, I feel like I need to be more cautious with with what I decide to do and not do. But yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. All right. Uh, if you're listening to this, thank you. You're awesome. Um, and we really appreciate. We really. <laughs> it's so straightforward. I mean, yeah. we don't say it enough. You guys are awesome. <laughs> we appreciate it. And if you if you want to help us in any way, you feel the need to help us doing it. The easiest way to do it is by sharing the show on social media. Obviously, it helps the algorithms. They like us. It makes people. It makes the the systems algorithms think that we're, again <laughs> that we're more like. And ultimately, it grows the show in several ways. So we really do appreciate that. Um, if you do want to help us in a financial way, you can donate as little as a few dollars, $1, $2, by going to our Instagram and clicking the link at the top. You buy us a coffee, or what we really do is put it towards the software programs that we use to Some, essentially- we buy coffee too. Yeah, or a beer, whatever. But <laughs> it, it, it helps, and it really we do really appreciate that. So if you're even considering it, thank you. And again, if you just go to our Instagram, the link there, the first one, that's the way to do it. So thank you. Thank you.